This is the Tactical Leader Podcast, where we're on a journey of self-mastery and true leadership. I believe that in order to lead others, you must first be able to lead yourself. And in order to lead yourself, you have to first know yourself. If you want to learn the tactics to get to know yourself, to lead yourself, and to lead others, stay tuned to hear from industry experts as I unpack the tactics that they've used to build their business, build culture, and lead others. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Tactical Leader. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Mike Michalowicz, and we're going to be discussing his book, All In, and talk about how we can help each other build great teams and great corporate culture. Before we begin, I want to remind you, this show is powered by ATL Vets, advancing the line for veterans. If you know a veteran that needs a little bit of assistance out there, be sure to send them over to atlvets.org and have them join the community. Mike, welcome to the show, my friend. Well, it's good to be here, Zach. Thanks for having me. Man, I'm excited about this one. As I mentioned before we started recording, uh, I've been in the podcast game for quite a while and uh, your name has popped up for years and I'm glad we finally were able to get this going. And really, me too. your name popped up first off from Profit First, sure. which is one of your best-selling books, obviously more than a million copies. So you've done some amazing work there. Now we're talking about All In and this book. But before we dive in too far, I want to give the audience just a little bit of an idea that you're an entrepreneur. You're behind three multi-million dollar companies. The author of several books, as I mentioned, Profit First, Clockwork, Pumpkin Plan, and then the newest one, All In. A really interesting piece that I found kind of fascinating, because I feel like this is a pretty awesome feather in your cap, is that you're a former small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal and yeah. a makeover expert for MSNBC. So you've done a lot of just traveling the, gro- the globe as an entrepreneurship advocate, which is fascinating. Before we dive into all that and dissect it and then dive into the book, what's a fun fact that we might not know about you that you don't share too often? Yeah, I got a little surprise for you. I was a co-owner and a manufacturer of sheaths for tactical and bushcraft knives. So you probably know the K-Bar, Tom Bransfordage. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, you probably know that one pretty well. There was one called the Blackbird. Those knives, my company, I was an investor in the company. We manufactured sheaths for them. It was called Hedgehog Leatherworks. It still exists today. It's a great little organization out of Missouri. Very cool. That's a fun thing. And yeah, I uh, carried a K-Bar when uh, I was overseas. So I love it. That's awesome. Knife, man. It's, it's a good a, knife. Yeah. It's a good I knife. Had, I was at their manufacturing site too, to check out what they did. Yeah. It was really cool. Visiting K-Bar. Very cool, man. I, I love that. Definitely a fun fact. And obviously we're going to dive into all in and, and I want to kind of go back before we hit the book. I want to know, like, obviously you've written a lot of books. There, there's a lot of limiting beliefs about writing books and you've written for, I mean, the Wall Street Journal of, of all things and MSNBC. So I wrote my first book a little over a year ago and there were a lot of obstacles to overcome in my own head, right? Of, of yeah. trying to just put out a work like that. What motivated you to become not just an entrepreneur, but a writer about different pieces of entrepreneurship? Yeah. And I never in my life thought I would be a writer and author, but it was 15 or 20 years ago now. Um, I was running businesses and I, I was cocky. I was overly cocky. I thought I knew everything about business because I had some early successes. And now in retrospect, realized luck was a major factor. And then I lost everything. And I won't belabor the story, but it was a very painful period. I went through depression, but I did start because of a friend of mine told me, start journaling, which is a, it's a guy's term for diary. <laughs> so he's like, just write down your feelings and emotions. I was writing stuff down. And occasionally I'd say, I thought this is how business was but here's something I see that's different. I started having these realizations. I was like, my gosh, this, this could be a book. 
admittedly, every book, including my newest, every book I write, I'm reflecting on what I don't understand about entrepreneurship. I am really trying to master entrepreneurship, maybe desperately so, because I'm not perfect at it. So I'm seeking out the solutions. And when I find something that works for me, I just feel compelled to share with others through my books. I love that, man. I think that's a huge piece. It's usually, I found when I've talked, spoke with authors and same with my book, it's one of those, it's like the personal journey, right? As yeah. you're discovering things, you're learning, you want to share those things with other people, get back into that piece. And I know All In was a big piece of that. And the basis of it, of the book, and what I really grasped from it was that it's all about going all in on your team. And it really focuses on not just going all in yourself, but like for yourself in a company, which is a hard shift, you know, yeah. that teetering piece with business and entrepreneurship. It's one thing to go all in for yourself, but then to go all in and trust that employees can do as much as you can do, as well as you can do it. You really focus on really expanding that idea. How do you really break that block for most entrepreneurs? What would you, to get past that, I don't want to hire anybody. Nobody can do it like me and really break the block there into, I'm going to hire people and go all in and making sure. Yeah. I think the first realization is there is no one like you. You're the you're a one-on-one, Zach. I'm a one-on-one. Any individual listening, we're all one-on-one. So for me to expect a clone of myself to show up, it's unreasonable. Because listen, if I own a business, that dude would probably own a business. Like <laughs> it's unlike you're gonna find a clone, but you can do this concept called fractionalization. And what fractionalization is, is a reflection on what you make up within the business. What are the individual tasks that you're bringing talent to. When you break yourself into pieces, you'll find there's other individuals that can subsidize or fill in one of those pieces, perhaps even better than you can, plus other parts. The strongest businesses are a blend, a mix of people that have these complementary talents, and it comes about pretty organically. The other point I discovered is with small enterprises, small businesses, you know, the belief that you got to bring in 10 people now is impossible, but you can with part-time and virtual help nowadays very easy. So what can we take off of our plate? The other thing I want to share about the transition is the most important element to get off yourself is the experience of delegation. I used to think my business was performing at a standard water level and that if I stepped out, it would slip down. But the realization is when I step out, the business actually lands where it needs to land, where it actually is operating. So without my participation, I then become an observer saying, oh, this is where we are. Instead of you know, turning up the heat and pushing the business up. My job now is to blaze the path in front of my organization so it naturally rises. So ironically, great leaders remove themselves from the doing. They see where the homeostasis is for the business and then elevate the bar by putting people in with their talents matching their tasks. You know, it's funny. That's a really difficult concept as a whole. It's hard. (laughs) And it's interesting. When I started my first company, I was still in the military and I actually got deployed to Afghanistan about eight months into my first company. And we were hitting 10K a month. I mean, we were hitting that multi-six figure projection for year one, which I I was thrilled with, right? Yeah. I I went from being a beat cop to starting my own company and going from 40K a year to like over six figures in year one. I'm like, awesome. And then month eight, I get deployed to Afghanistan. And what was interesting about it is I I had about a three-month window of I have to prep SOPs, structure. I have to find somebody to run the company while I'm gone and no, I won't be able to contact them for a week or two at a time. So I had the gift, if you will, of like, I didn't have a choice. I had to find a structure. What would you, what would put somebody's feet to the fire if they're not going to war? 
what would put somebody's feet to the fire to be like, all right, I have to take a step back to stop limiting my own company? There's two things. One is it's a simple phrase, and it's this. The job of an entrepreneur is not to do the job. It's to be a creator of job. Now, I want to give you context. Only 17% of the population will ever operate or lead a business, small business. So you're one of 17%. Zach, that's atypical. 83% of people are looking for jobs. But there's another statistic that's even more mind-blowing. Of the 17% of people who start a business, only 20% do it on a sustainable, healthy basis fiscally. 20% times 17% is 3%. That means 3% of the population, one kid from your kindergarten class is running a healthy, successful business. That's you. And then that's me. And our job is to support every other one of those kids from kindergarten who are looking for good jobs with good companies. So first, it's understanding the frame of our identity. We're not the elite doers. We are the ones blazing the trail so others can do. We're the weirdos, honestly. So that's step one, is to realize your job is to create jobs, not do jobs. The second thing is to mandate that shift. Any individual listening can go on their calendar one year from today, block out four weeks, tell your friends and family, I'm out of here, I'm taking off, a physical and digital disconnect. If you feel a little bit of nausea thinking of that, that means your business can't run without you yet. And that's what we need to fix. So by putting that line in the sand, now we have to reverse engineer, what can we do to remove ourselves? Last tip is, it ain't going to be perfect when you're gone, but it'll be better. When you come back, you're going to realize where you had the weak spots and you can fix that for your next four-week vacation. I've been taking a four-week vacation now for seven consecutive years. I literally just returned from mine this past December. And it's game-changing and changing from a doer inside the business to a designer of a business. Yeah, I love that piece of it because what you realize is like, I, I would imagine as you take that month-long sabbatical, you realize how many Band-Aids you're actually putting on the business, right? Yes. Day-to-day, you throw a Band-Aid on and it's like, all right, I'll just fix it. But you never actually fix it. You're treating the symptoms and not the actual cause root issue, right? 100%. I 100%. A piece of this, and, and I really was fascinated by a, a, a huge piece of the book talking about hiring, letting people go, and really finding those key employees. Yeah. And I was curious, as you start started dissecting, I mean, you've gotten everything from bad hires. You mentioned a story about an employee that lied about a family death, so they oh. want a paid vacation. Oh. That one, I laughed out loud, man. I, I hate to laugh about it. It's yeah, no, it's crazy. Sure. But for, obviously not a great employee, lied about a death in the family so they could have a paid vacation. Sure. Now, as you've shifted and you look back over the years, there's a great quote by John Maxwell about how to ask, uh, obviously good leaders ask great questions, being a great book, but there, there's a specific piece about asking great questions in interviews. Yeah. Do you have a set basis of questions you love asking when you're interviewing employees or you encourage people? Ask these things, get past like the resume questions, right? Or yeah. what's your greatest strength? That silliness is like, that's not really going to give the insights of the, the core of the values of a human. What do you ask in interviews or what do you recommend asking to get past that fluff? Yeah. And I, I've diminished the significance of interviews. There's key parts I want to share. And there's another part I want to add. So in the interview component, I'm asking about people's history. Generally, our history will represent our future. So how we behave in the past is indicative of our future. So ask the same question. You know, Have you had circumstances where customers were mad and you had to deal with that person? How did you deal with them? But don't ask them just one time. Hypothetically, say, give me the story of you actually experienced this. And if you haven't, that's cool. But tell me. And then tell me another story. And tell me another story. And what you're trying to do is understand from their history what the pattern is. But the second thing, the add-on I've made, 
I call them workshops or skills tests. Set up a scenario. I uh, interviewed the University of Chicago, their medical department. It's a major organization. And what they wanted to to hire was people doing administrative check-ins when you go to the hospital. Well, the person being interviewed in just a straight interview who was best was very authoritative, very confident, explained, here's how I do things. They then gave him a skills test. They actually had him work in observation as a check-in. A patient came in with cerebral palsy, which means you have very your fine motor skills are very negligible. So to get out your license, as an example, could take an, a minute. This same candidate, out of frustration, said, just give me your license and ripped it out of their hand. Other people in that same skill assessment said, please take the time you need or may I assist you? So the person who exuded confidence in an interview failed the objective actual simulation of the event. So what I believe is the best interview ultimately is also a simulation, an experience. And I I love that. It it takes it past that, just sit down and back and forth, because you have some of those really charismatic people that can like- For sure. Actually, have you ever seen the movie, The Internship, and it has Owen Wilson- it's about the Google internship. Oh, yeah. It's an old movie, but Older great. Movie. So it, Will Ferrell is uh, my significant other. It's one of her favorite actors, and she'd never seen the movies. We He's watched so it last week. And it's funny because as I was reading the book, it, they the Google inter- internship asked a question. Imagine if you were shrank down to the size of a nickel and put in a blender. How would you, what would you do? And their response was, well, we know for a fact that blenders only run, have an 11-hour runtime, so we're just going to sit there and chill out and enjoy the breeze. And it was something, a long explanation, but it was a very unique answer compared to everybody else, right? Yeah. So I, I think that's a really interesting piece of, you know, what's the critical thinking capability you have as an employee? And then how does that then further the entrepreneur's business? Because I think that's vital. What's the critical capability for a team member to think, right? So you, do, you can remove yourself for a month. And they can solve a problem for you. For sure. Do you see that being a commonality that you really want to find? Yeah, you definitely want to find critical thinking, but you also want in that stressful situation, how do they act when they're in the moment? My my brother-in-law also served. He was in the Iraqi war, the first one, and uh, he was a tank sergeant. And he told me when the bullets were bouncing off the tank, he goes, that first five minutes, he goes, that was the most intimate. I was in the experience, even though he'd gone through the battle plan and done all the the rehearsal, when he was in the experience, he says that how people behaved shifted. And then we had our confidence set in and then he goes, then we, we had to do what we had to do. I, I want to see if I can also put my candidates in that simulation. So with the blender, you know, can I make a situation, obviously not, but where I can have someone feel that breeze. And it's the first few seconds too, that shows their reactive thinking. So it's critical thinking, what I can do when I'm in a controlled environment, but when things are actually happening, what is the reactive thinking? I want to measure that also. Nice. I, I love that. And I think that's a really important piece. And a lot of that seemed to go into another chapter of your book about psychological ownership. Yeah. It was really focused on, I, I never heard it framed this way. Obviously, the, the big thing in the military with Jocko is extreme ownership. And yeah, right. you, you put a different spin on it with a psychological piece about it. What would be the best piece? One of the points you had, I'm sorry, is talking about somebody that has psychological ownership also has ownership into the information and you had several steps, right? But information was a big piece of maintaining that and information flow, which I feel like is a huge piece where entrepreneurs kind of fail is communication, right? How do you communicate to the team? What do you see in that realm to get the psychological ownership? How do you have entrepreneurs and business owners communicate, keep that flow of information because there's so much happening. What do they need to know? What do they not need to know? Yeah. 
flow of information going where they still maintain that psychological buy-in. Yeah. The general rule is the more people know, the more they will grow. Because what it does is allows them to assert some form of understanding. I did a lot of research around open books and financial management. And one thing that was very interesting is that I found when businesses were open books, that it gave the employees more sense of security, regardless if the business was in an actually more financially secure environment. So that lack of knowledge is, there's always that question like, what's going on? And this isn't just for financial security. It's you know, in my job, what's going on? I remember interviewing someone who came in for a one-year review that we get reviewed once a year. And this person said, every time I come in, I don't know if I'm getting fired today. I'm like, how can that even be possible? You don't know what's coming because there was a lack of knowledge. Yeah. And the same person that thought they were going to get fired gets a five-star review and gets a big raise. No one should experience that. So what we want to do is give people enough knowledge where they understand their environment fully, that they can foresee the future so they can make smart decisions. When people have knowledge, they have control. Now, to, to your point, there can be circumstances that we get more information than we need that can result in overwhelm, or it can result in people forming what's called fiefdoms, meaning they say, I know everything. I'm going to start blocking other people out. So it is a little bit of a Goldilocks. We want some balance. But for most leaders, I found they are giving too little information. We should give more. And a lot of that goes into how every, and they have all these assessments, right? The DISC assessment, I, I love yeah. the saboteur assessment. So you can identify uh, the positive intelligence aspect of the saboteurs. But a lot of it really goes into what's the personal operating maneuver mechanic. Wow. I'm messing up what you call it, the personal operation manual. Yes. I made a note of it so I could actually say it properly. But each individual, they have a particular way of they, how they communicate, how they operate. And you've broken it down into a personal operation manual, everything from their goals, their skill set, how they like to be communicated with. Can you dive into that a little bit for us and explain how we can not only identify it, but what's the value of it in the company? Yeah, it's a tip I got from a, an entrepreneur named Adrian Dorison, who runs Run Like Clockwork. It's an organization that brings about efficiencies. And I was talking to her as I was writing all in my new book that I'm looking to build super cohesive teams. And, and she explained, you got to make sure you're communicating the right way. The analogy she used that opened my eyes to this was when you buy a new electronic device, a new computer, or even a handheld device, usually comes with the thick manual, but there's that one page that's the quick start. And that's all you need to read to get rolling and get most of the, what you want done, done. But we can have that quick start guide for people. I call them POMs, personal operating manuals or POMs. But what it has is how people communicate. There's a great book called The Five Appreciation Languages. It's like the five love languages, but five appreciation languages. Some people like words of affirmation, like I do. Other people like acts of service or, or gifts of acknowledgement. And when someone does something successfully, we've been told, you know, public recognition, private condemnation. But what we found is public recognition isn't always bring someone on stage and say, good job. Sometimes it's just a small gift of some sort. And, and I'm not saying something expensive, just some acknowledgement. But you have to know how people communicate. Some people like to communicate succinctly. Some people like more uh, personal background and, and history, and they want a more loquacious conversation. So at our office here, and we have a brick and mortar location, but you can do this virtually too. Each person has a one sheet. Maybe it's about 300 words with different categories of how we like to communicate, what we're good at, what we're not good at. The quick start guide. And before you start working with one of your colleagues, you can always review this to ensure you have the smoothest, strongest communication. I love that. And I love that it tied, you tied it into the appreciation languages because the love language is a big piece in the personal world, right? Totally. So 
mean, in relationships and as a veteran, I mean, it's uh, veteran and, and police are two of the industry's like highest divorce rates. So the yes. love language is one of those things that is huge. The appreciation languages. There's another one, and, and I'm curious your insights on this with bosses that are supervisors that don't want to apologize and don't want to take ownership of their own piece. There's another one that I just recently yeah. discovered that's like the apology language and how people want to receive an apology or make amends. Have you ever dove into like leaders that can apologize to you? Hey, I, I blamed you for X, Y, and Z, but it's really this issue. And they're taking ownership from the top and uh, reinforcing that through an apology that kind of furthers that appreciation language. Yeah, I have researched that. And I talk about a little bit in the book, this concept of reciprocity. It's a behavioral wiring. And what reciprocity is, what someone does upon to you, we will reciprocate in kind. I live in the Northeast. Traffic is always bumper to bumper. People are honking, giving the bird. When I honk or give the bird, guess what I get back? And I'm like, oh, thank you for that. I get the bird back. And so the thing is, when someone shows a humbleness to show that they made an error and expose themselves, what they'll find as a leader is that the team will start doing the same thing. But you have to build that trust. If you've been denying accountability yourself for a long time, your team will deny their accountability. You have to be the first to do it. That's the definition of a leader. The first to humble themselves, the first to be integral and apologize. And it's not going to happen overnight. First, people will be a little leery that you're doing that. But over time, reciprocity's nature shows that people reciprocate in kind and you'll have a true insight into what's going in your business. If you have much more authentic communication, probably a much better, stronger business as a result. And I love that. And I love that you said it'll take time because it's one of those, if you've yeah. been that angry boss for so long and all of a sudden you start apologizing, people are like, oh. Yeah, what's going on here? Right. When's the bomb going to blow up on us? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's funny, man. And, and Mike, you have so many works. You, you've done so much to give back to entrepreneurs and start your own businesses. I'm real curious, what's the legacy you want to leave on the world with all the amazing work you're putting into it? Oh, I, I have a sign. Actually, I can even show you. I got a sign here on my wall. I have in every office. I have a couple offices and I may even get a tattoo, man, that says <laughs> eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. I, I've struggled with the gap of the vision of being financially independent, have the personal freedom to do what I want when I want, all this thing, all these things and not experiencing it. That gap is called entrepreneurial poverty. And I'm on a mission to eradicate that. So I hope before I leave this planet, I've left a little dent on getting people to achieve that vision. The, the world needs successful small business. Small business is the backbone of the economy. And I want to be a supporter in making that a reality. I, I love that. I said, go for the tattoo. Obviously, he's the tattooed guy. I said, go for the tattoo. Put <laughs> I don't it have one yet, but that may be my first. <laughs> no, I love that, man. And I appreciate you putting that much effort into it. And at this point, I'm doing a lot of business consulting and your books are one of those that, especially private first, I recommend most of my, if not all of my clients, because it's a great recognition and uh, all in is such a great piece that bridges into that next gap of now it's time to start scaling, right? And start building the company. So yeah. I think you're well on your way of accomplishing that legacy, my friend. And I want to make sure that the audience has an opportunity to not only get the book, find you, learn more about you. I mean, you're doing a ton of interviews right now, getting the word yeah. out. Where can the audience best find you? Best spot to go is my website. My last name is Michalowicz, which no one can spell and don't even try. But my nickname is Mike Motorbike. The run. It, by the way, it's the only PG rated nickname I've ever had. So I got the domain. <laughs> MikeMotorbike.com as in the motorcycle. Everything I've written, including all in, there's free chapter downloads. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal for years. You can get those articles for free. MikeMotorbike.com. Yeah, the next interview, we'll talk about all the inappropriate nicknames. Oh, I got countless ones. Yeah. There's a whole other book in there somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. 
I love it. Mike, man, I, I appreciate you. I really encourage everybody to go check out the new book, All In. Uh, it's available across Amazon, Audible. There's so many ways you can grab it. I really encourage everybody to go check it out. And of course, go follow Mike. Mike, thanks so much for being here today, my friend. Thank you, brother. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Tactical Leader Podcast. If this episode helped you along your journey of self-mastery and has inspired you to do more, I challenge you to head over to myvoicechallenge.com so you can find out how you can discover your voice, claim your independence, and build that thriving business that you've always wanted. Again, that's myvoicechallenge.com.